Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Samantha Thomas and today we'll be talking with Dr. Ray Jayaward Hanna, Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Toronto. He's also the author of the 2013 book Neutrino Hunters, the story of the search for the elusive but most abundant particle in the universe, the neutrino. Today we'll learn about the nature of the neutrino, the story of its discovery, and what these elementary particles t can tell us about cosmological events, as well as the affairs of the subatomic world. Here's Dr. Jayawar Hanna to introduce himself. I'm an observational astronomer that um, my own research focuses on looking for and characterizing planets um, circling other stars, planets beyond our solar system that we call exoplanets. Um, and also the formation and diversity of planetary systems, um, how those other planetary systems uh, compare to our own. I was intrigued by, by, uh, by neutrinos, uh, both the science uh, as well as the colorful history uh, of uh, searching for neutrinos, um, which is what led me to, to writing this book, um, which I, I thought it was a compelling uh, subject for a, for a popular science book, uh, both because of uh, what's happened uh, through history, but also because the field of neutrino research is really um, taking off right now uh, in, in multiple directions. Why don't you, you tell us a little bit about neutrino, introduce us briefly to the neutrino and, and what's so mysterious about them? Um, neutrino is a, a type of elementary particle. Um, they're a fundamental constituent of matter. Um, and what's intriguing about them is that they have rather... Um, elusive personalities um, and, and rather quirky characteristics. Um, for example, they hardly ever interact with the environment. So neutrinos are extremely difficult to pin down and, and to study um, because of that um, elusive nature. So um, are they elusive because they're very light or because they're neutral charge? What, what makes them so... Um so uh, multiple reasons. So one reason is because they are um, neutral particles. They don't have an electric charge, which means um, unlike charged particles, they don't leave tracks in a bubble chamber, for example. So it's not easy to, to study them that way. Um, another is that the primary way that they interact with other particles is through the weak force, which is a short-range um, force in nature. Uh, which means to trigger an interaction, uh, a neutrino has to come incredibly close to an atomic nucleus or an electron, for example. So um, the, the, the interactions happen uh, randomly by chance, uh, even though neutrinos are the most abundant type of matter particle in the universe, mm. um, with you know trillions of them passing through your body every second of every day and night. Um, only a hand, you know, only a handful of neutrinos are registered, even by uh, some of the biggest neutrino detectors in the world. Where do they come from? Uh, some of them come from the nuclear furnace at the heart of the sun. They're produced during the nuclear reactions that that power uh, the sun itself. Um, others are produced in the upper atmosphere of the Earth when cosmic rays uh, collide with atoms up there. Um, yeah, so that those two sources account for the majority of neutrinos passing through your body. Um, there are also neutrinos produced beneath our feet uh, mm -hmm. when radioactive elements in the Earth's interior decay. Um, that also 
releases neutrinos, which we call geoneutrinos. Um, so neutrinos are literally all around us, um, coming at us uh, from all directions. So I know that uh, oftentimes particles are theorized before they're actually discovered uh, with empirical evidence. Was was this the case for neutrinos? Um, indeed, uh, neutrinos were proposed back in 1930 by Wolfgang Pauli as a way of accounting um, for energy that seemed to go missing uh, during beta decay, a type of radioactive decay. Um, so uh, they were hypothesized long before they were, uh, they were experimentally confirmed, which took some 25 years. Uh, because of their elusive nature, neutrinos, it took a long time for physicists to, to track them down experimentally. And, and it was only in the 1950s um, that Fred Rines and Clyde Cowan, uh, two physicists who worked at Los Alamos, uh, were successful in, in confirming the existence of neutrinos experimentally. So, so they were the first that were successful, but they were not the first who tried. Uh, indeed, yeah. Several others tried soon after Pauli's initial suggestion, uh, but not with a, a great deal of sensitivity. Um, um, so it wasn't a huge surprise that, that the neutrino wasn't detected right away after its uh, initial um, uh, the, the, after the initial suggestion of, of its existence. Uh, but in, in the past few decades, um, there are many different neutrino experiments uh, that uh, track them down and study them. And, and you can, if you like, um, character, uh, classify uh, the neutrino experiments happening around the world into, into three distinct types. Uh, one type, um, for example, the, the, the large neutrino detector at the South Pole called Ice Cube, or the Sudbury neutrino detector in Northern Ontario, Canada, uh, they basically uh, uh, are large uh, volume contraptions that uh, uh, detect and measure neutrinos coming from natural sources like the sun or the mm -hmm. Earth's upper atmosphere. And then there are neutrino experiments that where physicists intentionally produce neutrino beams, for example, at Fermilab, and uh, study them some distance away, for example, from a, from a mine in Minnesota. Um, to study their uh, behavior as they travel through the Earth. Uh, and then there's a third type of neutrino experiment where physicists set up their equipment next to working nuclear reactors uh, because the byproduct of those reactors is, is neutrinos. Um, so they are harnessing um, those neutrinos uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, as sources of, of, uh, of particles for their uh, experiments. And that was the case for, for Rhines and Cohen, if I remember right. Yes, they, 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 their uh, initial detection of neutrinos back in the 1950s happened uh, by um, uh, harnessing neutrinos produced in a nuclear reactor. And what characteristic of neutrinos did they kind of take advantage of to detect them? How were they able to be successful where others weren't? Um, well, well the, the, the many different neutrino um, detection experiments they all rely on um, some form of interaction of a neutrino with um, another particle. Um, so depending on, on uh, you know, different experiments have been set up to, to look for a different um, interaction. Um, one of the other people who, in starting in the 1950s, got very interested in neutrinos was Ray Davis, um, who set up an experiment to look for the solar neutrino. Um, and his technique 
was to look for, um, well, he used a, a, a large vat of uh, dry cleaning fluid, essentially, um, as a neutrino detector and, and set it up deep underground in a mine in uh, South Dakota. And uh, he uh, relied on a neutrino interacting with a chlorine atom uh, in in dry cleaning fluid mm-hmm. and turning that into an argon uh, atom, which uh, in turn decayed radioactively, and, and he was essentially counting those decaying argon atoms, and, and that's the way he knew that uh, that neutrinos had arrived. So, uh, in, in you know, in, in these cases, you're not seeing the neutrino directly, but you're uh, you're measuring the uh, the results of it interacting with uh, some other particle and, and possibly producing a new particle that you can detect because it might have an electric charge, for example. That's always fascinating to me when I read about these physics discoveries because they're, they're so indirect and I feel like what's powerful about those findings is the fact that they were predicted. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that sometimes um, particles are detected, you know, that weren't predicted, but um, in many cases, it's, the prediction seems to precede uh, the experimental confirmation, uh, and that was certainly the case um, with the neutrino. Okay. So... Um, so it was Pauli who who predicted them first, but it was Fermi who who coined the term. How how did that happen? Uh, yes, I mean if Pauli's uh, proposal for a new particle was a rather radical move back then because physicists only knew of two other matter particles in in 1930. Only the electron and the proton mm-hmm. had been um, uh, uh, confirmed to exist. Not even the neutron had been detected yet. Um, so it really was a, a, a bold and, and risky move on the part of Pauli to, to propose a new particle um, to account for the problem of beta decay. Um, and uh, some scientists were skeptical. Uh, Pauli himself, um, it's reported that he had some doubts himself that whether the part, this particle, this poltergeist particle that he proposed would ever be experimentally detected. Um, but one of the people who did take Pauli's suggestion seriously was, was Enrico Fermi, who was a prominent young physicist in Rome back then, um, with uh, a, a whole group of uh, young physicists working with him, uh, many of whom went on to, to have brilliant careers um, of their own. Uh, Fermi uh, basically proposed a, 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 a theory of beta decay that incorporated uh, Pauli's suggestion. Uh, and and uh, he's the one who coined the term neutrino, um, Italian for, for little neutral one, um, to describe this particle. Uh, part of the reason he came up with that name was to, to distinguish it from the neutron, which by then had been detected. So uh, this is a different neutral particle, uh, a much lighter one than the neutron. And, and that's part of the reason he, he coined the term neutrino. I see. So it started out with, you know, just a couple of people bouncing this idea back and forth, and, and it sounds like it gained momentum, and now it's become generally accepted um, that neutrinos are real and important and mysterious. Um, indeed. I mean, the, the, the interest in neutrinos has, has uh, really taken off in the last 10 to 15 years uh, among physicists. Um, neutrino research has really... Um, transformed from a sleepy backwater to, to a thriving hub of activity uh, by now involving close to a thousand researchers around the world. Um, one of the uh, key reasons for that is that uh, 
around the year 2000-2001, um, scientists discovered that neutrinos uh, morph among three different flavors, um, mm. uh, something that they describe as neutrino oscillations. Um, and if neutrinos oscillate among three flavors, that um, suggests that they have non-zero mass. In other words, they, they are not massless, massless particles. Um, and that um, opens up the possibility of, of uh, interesting new physics uh, beyond what's called the standard model of particle physics. So, so one of the reasons that physicists are excited about um, uh, studying neutrinos is the potential uh, that they would reveal uh, new physics beyond uh, what's accounted for in the standard model. Uh, another is that neutrinos connect to such a, a diverse range of phenomena, uh, both in the subatomic realm, but also on, on, on a cosmic scale. Um, so, one of the, as you mentioned, the uh, uh, Physics World magazine uh, ranked the discovery of cosmic neutrinos last year as, as the top uh, physics breakthrough of 2013. Uh, that is because IceCube, the world's biggest neutrino observatory uh, located at the South Pole, uh, for only the second time registered uh, a batch of neutrinos coming from far beyond our solar system. Um, in, in other words, um, we're just starting to, to use neutrinos as, as cosmic messengers um, to learn about um, some of the most violent uh, phenomena um, in the distant universe. And, and there's a lot of uh, hope and, and, and expectation that uh, neutrino astronomy will uh, provide new insights uh, into uh, what happens in the, in, in the extreme environments near black holes, for example, or dying stars. So all of these reasons that because neutrinos connect to astrophysics, to cosmology, to particle physics, um, even geophysics in terms of uh, studying uh, geoneutrinos produced in the Earth, um, and even nuclear technology because of the uh, production of neutrinos in nuclear reactors, um, they really do connect to a, a wide range of, of fields of interest. And, and, and that's the other reason these many-fold connections to, to such a vast array of uh, of topics is, is the other reason that neutrinos are, are gaining popularity among researchers. Yeah, so I'd like to touch on a couple of those. I, I read a quote from um, somebody you know that was, whenever anything cool happens in the universe, neutrinos are usually involved. Yes, <laughs> I liked quote that. from uh, Lindley Winslow, who's now uh, a professor at uh, UCLA. So you mentioned black holes and dying stars. Are those the events that she was referring to, or he? Well, she's referring to the fact, yeah, indeed, that there's a, a range of um, phenomena that neutrinos um, are uh, produced in and, and, and could tell us about. Um, the first time that neutrinos from beyond our solar system were detected was, was, back in, uh, was back in 1987, when a supernova exploded in a satellite galaxy of the Milky Way called the Large Magellanic Cloud. Um, back then, uh, just two dozen neutrino events were registered by three different neutrino detectors around the world um, that uh, were, um, you know, the first messengers coming from uh, the, the, the device of this uh, gigantic star. Uh, today's neutrino hunters have a, a much bigger and much more sensitive um, set of detectors at their disposal, which means if a supernova were to explode now, anywhere in the Milky Way galaxy, uh, these researchers expect to detect up to several hundred thousand neutrinos uh, coming from that event, produced in that event. So uh, imagine how much more scientists could learn 
by um, measuring all of those hundreds of thousands of neutrinos. Uh, they could uh, tell us whether the uh, supernova explosion produced, uh, produced uh, a black hole at its end or a neutron star instead, uh, for example. So astrophysicists are interested in that. Uh, but then particle physicists might learn something about the behavior of neutrinos as they pass through the extremely dense layers um, uh, as they as they come out from the heart of the explosion. So there's, there's a lot one could um, learn uh, both about neutrinos themselves and about exploding stars uh, if um, we're able to see, uh, to, to detect neutrinos coming from a nearby supernova. So it sounds like there's at least two types of information that you can get from studying neutrinos. One of them is just detecting neutrinos coming from extrasolar events, right? And the other is more um, mechanistic, maybe. I, I think that you, you mentioned that they can actually help us understand the nature of antimatter. Could you touch on that? Um, yeah, I mean, the you know, back in 1987 with, with supernova, um, the supernova that exploded in the Large Magellanic Cloud, uh, with only a couple of dozen events, uh, it was difficult to, to nail down a lot of detail about the supernova explosion from the neutrino measurements. Uh, but they did confirm that the basic um, picture we have of an exploding star uh, does, you know, it, it, it was validated by the neutrino detection. Um, but with many more neutrinos, uh, uh, one could learn about some of the details of the explosion, you know, how it was triggered and, and how it um, um, unraveled over several or maybe even tens of seconds. Um, so to learn about sort of the details of, of um, how an exploding star, you know, un unravels um, is, is, is something that uh, astrophysicists are very keen to to, um, to uh, have have a, a direct uh, view of, and neutrinos could produce that. Um, in terms of um, antimatter, uh, one one of the, the difficult and profound questions um, that we have about the universe is is uh, how it came to be dominated by matter, um, because there's the expectation that soon after the Big Bang there should have been um, equal amounts of matter and antimatter created, but but if the amounts were precisely equal, then uh, they might have uh, come together and annihilated and, and left us with just a sea of radiation. Um, in other words, we, we might not be here. So um, the, the fact that the present-day universe is dominated by matter tells us that um, some asymmetry did arise uh, early on, and, and we don't know exactly how that happened. And one of the more promising avenues for exploring um, how that asymmetry came about is, is to study neutrinos and their antimatter twins um, to, to um, measure whether uh, both interact with uh, the environment in identical ways or not. Um, so that's one of the, the uh, areas that, um, that's drawing a lot of interest and attention. Uh, some of the ongoing and, and, and planned experiments are, are meant to investigate uh, the you know, any possible difference between neutrinos and antineutrinos. I see. Um, I'd like to go back to the neutrino oscillations. Um, there's three flavors of neutrinos. What causes them to shift between flavors? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, 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 I guess the best way to describe it is it is, a, it is a, an intrinsic property of the neutrino to 
uh, oscillate among three flavors. It's a, it's a quantum phenomenon, so it's a little difficult to come up with a, uh, you know, day-to-day analogy um, for what's, what's happening. But um, on their way, for example, from the sun to the earth, the neutrinos could oscillate from, um, you know, electron neutrinos into muon neutrinos and, and back again, for example, um, which means that depending on where exactly you measure them, uh, you might measure a, a different flavor of the neutrinos. So the early experiments that were sensitive to only one type of uh, one flavor uh, would have missed the others mm-hmm. uh, and therefore that accounted for or explained um, the missing solar neutrinos, which was a, which was a big problem um, for nearly three decades. The scientists were, were measuring only a fraction of, uh, of the neutrinos they expected to see coming from the sun. But now, in, in recent years, not just uh, solar neutrinos, but, but neutrinos produced um, in laboratory settings have been um, uh, studied uh, as they uh, uh, oscillate among flavors. So, so this is an area, very active area of research that um, even in the, just the last couple of years, there have been new measurements of um, how the, uh, the, the rates at which the neutrinos um, uh, uh, change flavor so it's, it's, it's an ongoing research area that, um, that that's being pursued um, quite seriously. But there are definitely only three, right? <laughs> or are well, we going to find that's one? A, yeah, that's a good question. For, for a while, there was some hint that there might be a fourth flavor of a neutrino. Uh, but for the most part, that, that um, evidence seems not to hold up any longer. So to the best of um, our understanding, uh, both from experiments on Earth, uh, but also from measurements uh, in cosmology where uh, astronomers um, do statistics on the cosmic microwave background, um, the, the radiation left over from, uh, from the Big Bang, uh, that those, those measurements seem to also uh, point towards three neutrino flavors. I see. Um... For me, anyway, it's it's a tough point um, often when I'm thinking about particle physics, whether something's oscillating between states or whether it's partially existing in multiple states. Um, I, I wonder if that distinction is clear here or... Um... Uh, it's, 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 it's a bit complex. It, it is definitely the most sort of complicated bit um, about neutrinos to, to explain. Um, you know, the, the idea is that in neutrinos, a neutrino is a superposition of, of sort of multiple mass states, and um, you can think of them in some sense as sort of different quantum waves that propagate at slightly different rates, and therefore, depending on whether you're looking at um, them in phase or out of phase, you, you might measure a different uh, flavor dominating. So that's the kind of, so it, it is because they are a superposition of multiple uh, mass states that, that you do get this phenomenon and, and of, of um, neutrino oscillations, right? So um, it is, it, it's not easy to sort of have an intuitive feel for, or to, to visualize it because it's obviously uh, happening in the quantum realm and, and, and not in sort of day-to-day life. Um, but it, it's certainly a, a, an interesting, mysterious, and, and potentially really um, revealing um, phenomenon, that one that could um, allow us to, to investigate uh, new physics that, that uh, we might not otherwise um, access. Um, I'd like to come back to the um, 
the the personal aspect of the neutrino hunt story. So it's kind of comical to me that there is this army of of brilliant thinkers chasing this nearly massless particle. I love that image. Yeah. Um, is there one or two or several people that really define the hunt for you? Um, I know many people are involved, but can you name a few that um, are really prominent? Um, yeah, I mean, historically, there have been some very colorful um, personalities involved in the neutrino uh, business, um, starting with uh, Wolfgang Pauli himself, who proposed the idea of the neutrino. Um, he was a, a rather brash and uh, and uh, sort of a no-holds-barred kind of uh, personality who, who didn't hesitate to challenge uh, authorities of his time. Um, and... Um, there, there have been many others uh, that I describe in the book, including uh, Bruno Pontecorvo, who um, was an Italian uh, physicist, uh, at one time worked with Fermi, um, and later on uh, created quite a, a, an international ruckus when he uh, and his family defected uh, from uh, the West, from Britain, where he was working at the time, uh, to the Soviet Union in, 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 in uh, the early 1950s. Um, and uh, there was also uh, Ettore Majorana, uh, another Italian physicist who uh, was seen as a reclusive genius and, and disappeared at age 32, uh, presumably while on a, on a boat trip from uh, Sicily back to Naples. Um, and he had his, there was no trace of him ever found. His family never saw him again. His colleagues never heard from him again. Um, and there were lots of um, there was a lot of speculation and and, um, and rumor about uh, what about his fate. Um, uh, so there have been many, many, many people um, associated with the neutrino search uh, that, you know, uh, that had interesting and, and fascinating uh, life stories. Um, I also had a chance to interview a couple of dozen, um, you know, living physicists who are uh, involved in, in the neutrino chase. Um, uh, one that was, uh, you know, who, who was particularly helpful and interesting um, to speak to was uh, Janet Conrad at, at MIT. She's a professor at MIT. Um, who's uh, very much on the forefront of, uh, of uh, neutrino uh, oscillation research, for example. Um, there are also um, scientists um, like uh, 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 those who built the uh, Ice Cube Observatory um, at the South Pole, which is, which is truly a marvel of extreme engineering. I mean, they, they effectively turned a cubic kilometer chunk of ice uh, deep beneath uh, the, the pole into uh, a neutrino detector. They dotted this cubic kilometer of ice with um, some 5,000 optical sensors. Um, by uh, by uh, drilling holes into the ice with a, with a high-pressure hot water drill and, and lowering these cables with, with uh, the optical sensors hanging on them. So it, it, it took quite a, a bit of uh, imagination and and uh, bold action to turn, you know, to, to come up with that sort of um, innovative idea for, for a neutrino detector and to turn it into a reality. It was a rather risky, expensive, and, and complicated um, endeavor, which is starting to already pay off in terms of um, scientific findings. Um, so there's truly, you know, it's, it's, it's a story um, that's captivating because of the fascinating science, but also the colorful personalities involved, uh, and also the engineering aspects that, that um, is quite uh, impressive, to, to say the least. Who's leading um, the search now, and what's next for neutrinos? What's on the 
Um, well, um, as I mentioned, there are probably close to a thousand researchers around the world involved in um, studying various aspects of, of the neutrino from um, from Japan and China to um, Europe to uh, North America uh, and and to Antarctica. So there's, there's quite a range of experiments starting the globe um, and many different people involved in, in the neutrino search. Um, the, uh, the number of fronts um, that are, are being pursued, one is um, the study of neutrino oscillations, uh, another is um, trying to understand whether neutrinos and their antimatter twins uh, behave in identical ways. Uh, another is uh, using neutrinos as um, astronomical messengers. In other words, um, relying, you know, looking for neutrinos coming from cosmic sources um, to learn about those distant, uh, distant cosmic objects. Um, and then there's the whole, um, the whole aspect of trying to put neutrinos to practical use um, here on Earth. So um, part of uh, the last chapter of the book, I discuss um, potential practical applications of neutrinos, um, starting with uh, some of the more serious efforts uh, aimed at using neutrino detectors to keep tabs on uh, nuclear reactors, um, to much more far-fetched ideas like using neutrinos for um, communications. Um, so there's, there's uh, you know, many, many different um, aspects to the story uh, and certainly plans to um, build the next generation of neutrino experiments to, to um, push the frontiers of knowledge. So keeping track of nu the nuclear reactors, and I can't help but um, mention the secret bombs test that you referred to. Well, the idea being that anytime you, um, you know, run a nuclear reactor or test a nuclear bomb, um, there will be uh, neutrinos uh, released, and there's nothing you can do to, to hide them. Yeah. Uh, they, would, they would escape from um, wherever they're produced. I mean, you can't build walls thick enough to, to prevent them from, um, from escaping, right? So if you could um, detect those neutrinos that are released, that would provide a way of, of uh, you know, finding out about uh, an otherwise, uh, you know, hidden test or, or, or certainly uh, if there was any, um, um, you know, improper activity in a, in a known nuclear reactor, if you could deploy uh, a neutrino detector nearby to keep tabs on it, um, you would have real-time data on, on, on its operation. So there's certainly um, sort of serious designs and plans um, about as to how you might uh, make that happen happen in practice. So it's you know this, these are uh, interesting you know ideas of putting an otherwise rather esoteric particle to to practical use. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, there there is one <laughs> one other point that I want to make sure we touch on. Um, a while back, the um, neutrino was rumored to travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, those claims were retracted, but but what happened there? Tell us. Um, yeah, there was a, a lot of hoopla around the possibility that the neutrino might travel faster than the speed of light um, a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, it generated headlines around the world because of the uh, prospects of you know time travel and breaking the ultimate cosmic speed limit set by Einstein and, and all of these implications. Um, but it did turn out that in the end it was uh, much ado about a faulty cable. <laughs> um, so um, the, uh, that particular measurement turned out um, not to be correct and, and other experimental measurements 
have suggested that the neutrino travels very close to the speed of light, but not not faster than it. Um, so that's been um, cleared out. Um, I'm sorry, I mean, that's been clarified by now. Mm -hmm. They're still very interesting little particles, um, even while obeying speed limits. My book, Neutrino Hunters, is, is, is really kind of a, a, a you know, the, the intertwined story of, of the science and the people. Um, involved in in the neutrino hunt, and and it's um, it's you know both aspects I found rather fascinating and, and um, intriguing, and, and it's um, also a story that um, you're likely to hear a lot more about in the coming years as neutrino uh, research comes of age and and really sort of takes the center stage um, as far as um, fundamental physics research um, goes. Um, so it's, it's you know I think the, the the history is colorful and interesting, but I think the present and the, and the future are, are, are rather um, promising as well. Again, that was Dr. Ray Jayawardhana, and his book is called The Neutrino Hunters. Thanks, everyone, for listening. To hear more from us, tune in next week or visit our website at grox.net. For Frank Ling, Charles Lee, Forrest Goulden, and Joanna Rowell, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.